If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The institution of Parliament has been central to Britain's story for centuries. From the gunpowder plot and Oliver Cromwell's clash with Charles I to Winston Churchill's speeches during the Second World War, Parliament has witnessed some of the most dramatic moments in British history. For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizzen sat down with Stephen Roberts, author of The History of Parliament, The House of Commons, 1640 to 1660, to tackle your questions on the history of Britain's Parliament. Hi Stephen, thanks for joining us today. So we're here to talk about the history of Britain's parliaments. Now, this is a a history that stretches back over many centuries and in the early years involves more than one nation. So I was wondering if we could start at the very beginning with a question that was submitted by Catherine 0411. And that is, when, how and why did England get its first parliament? Okay, well, thank you, Spencer. And thank you, Catherine, for the question. As far as we know, in the 10th century, that's around 900 AD, the kings of England, because there was more than one, England consisted of uh, not a single country, the kings of England would, would have been calling great men together to discuss affairs of state or affairs of, of high concern in the kingdoms. And the notion that this kind of assembly called the Witan was standing in, as it were, for the country as a whole or for the nation as a whole is identifiable as early as that time. So it really is in the mists of centuries long ago. Now, after 1066, when William the Conqueror, as everyone knows, came to the country, there was an introduction into the country of feudalism And feudalism required the attendance of citizens or lords or great powerful men on the king. So that tended to focus these assemblies in in a way that was more structured than previously. And then another key date, I suppose, is around 1215, again, a, a date that people are familiar with, Magna Carta, when the nobles were called together to finance the king's wars. Henry II, Richard I, involved themselves, again, as a lot of people know, in the Crusades, and that needed to be paid for by the country. So these developments, over a number of centuries, really, saw Parliament coalescing into something we can recognise today as a Parliament. And how representative would these early parliaments have been? I mean, who who exactly would have attended? In the period 1215 to 1307, it was a parliament of nobles, of the nobility, the aristocracy, largely. But there were also representatives of counties. And their purpose was to grant taxation to the king and to present petitions to him. So there was an involvement, a bit of a to and fro even as early as 1215 in these assemblies. 
And the earliest records that we can call records of Parliament survive from the period 1215 to 1307. And that's when we begin to see something recognisably traceable in terms of parliamentary records and uh, archives. Well, the first thing to say about the medieval parliaments, if you want to capture the essence of them, is that they were very short. They were We're talking weeks, maybe months. We're not talking about long periods of time at all. And there were two houses, as we know Parliament today. There were two houses in the Middle Ages. And they sat mostly at Westminster, but occasionally elsewhere. So, for example, in 1380, there was a Parliament at Northampton. And in 1407, Parliament sat in Gloucester. In terms of representativeness, after 1325, you get a situation where there are representatives coming to Westminster of the shires, the counties, the boroughs, and also the aristocrats, the peers, sitting in the House of Lords. And the legislation surrounding parliamentary elections first comes in in 1406, you have laws at that time that govern the conduct of, it, of elections, how elections should be, should be carried on in the counties and in the boroughs. And in 1430, you get an electoral qualification. Men had to have 40 shillings worth of property to be able to vote in parliamentary elections in the counties. Needless to say, and it, it has to be said, there were no women involved in, these, in this process at all. There were no women voters, nor were there women at Westminster. So, again, the medieval parliaments are representative of some aspects of the kingdom, but they can't in any way be called democratic. But nevertheless, there, as I've said, there are, there are aspects of the medieval parliaments that we would recognise today. Another thing to say about the parliaments of that period is that they were eventually, you know, as the Middle Ages evolved, you have the appearance of two houses at Westminster House of... something we could call the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Yeah, so that is a question that we, we had submitted by Andresito83, and, and they wanted to know, why is there that distinction? Why do we have a House of Commons and, and a House of Lords? And, and why is that concept that kind of lasted for so long? It's a, it is a very long and enduring concept that's really traceable in the earliest times of Parliaments. It's because... They represent what were called estates of the kingdoms, that is, groups of people who had particular relationships to the king. So the no nobility had duties to the king that the laity, the common people, didn't have. So you get this division between the aristocracy, and the king himself was an aristocrat in that sense. People that were surrounded the king and, and had privileges from the king, were granted individual privileges from the king on the one hand, and the common people on the other. That really accounts for the existence today of two houses of parliament. It's a, a slow process of evolution that can be traced right back to the Middle Ages. Okay, Stephen, so how did things differ in Scotland and Ireland? Well, you're, you're right to identify that those are two separate countries, and Scotland was a kingdom entirely to itself. And you have separate estates, as it were, groups of people representing the kingdom in Scotland as early as 1235, it's, th it's thought. In Scotland, the boroughs were represented in the Scottish Parliament before the shires were. The shires of Scotland only got representation after 1560. 
But the Scottish Parliament becomes more and more authoritative and more powerful right down to 1707 when it's merged into the English Parliament to become the, the situation that we have today with the two kingdoms merging. The Irish Parliament really began with the arrival of the Normans in that country in 1169, and it, it copied the pattern of the English Parliament. It was, if you could put it this way, it had a kind of colonial origin in a way that the Scottish Parliament didn't have because Ireland was, was subordinate or sub, subjugated to England even in the 12th century. It had much less power than the English Parliament, and the English Parliament retained the right to legislate for Ireland, even in the 16th and 17th centuries. A particular act of Parliament called Poyning's Law of 1495 specifically subordinated Irish Parliaments uh, to English ones. But the Irish Parliament did carry on for much longer than the Scottish one as an independent separate body anyway, and it finally sat in 1800. So let's jump forward a few centuries to a huge event in the, in the history of Britain's Parliament, and that is the Gunpowder Plot of 1605. And when Catholic conspirators chose to strike at the heart of the establishment, why did they choose to target Parliament? I think really the answer to that is the concept of the king in Parliament, the idea that the king is an integral part of Parliament, and, of course, par Parliament was where the key leaders of the country were sitting. The king had a had a role in Parliament. The king's palace, of course, was very near to Parliament. Uh, the Palace of Westminster still is a royal palace. Now, it's an important aspect of the evolution of the English Parliament to note that it's never been, and still isn't, in premises of, of its own, as it were. It, it's a royal palace. So... To strike at the Palace of Westminster when Parliament was sitting and the King was near at hand would have caused maximum, absolute maximum chaos in the kingdom. It would have struck not only at the King himself, but also at the, at the political leaders of the country. It was, was the most dramatic and devastating plan that any, anyone could have devised, really, and had it succeeded, it would have wiped out, or disabled anyway, the entire political class of the country, sowing maximum chaos. How did it impact on security within the Houses of Parliament? It obviously had an, an effect that of making Parliament thereafter much more concerned about its own safety, and it did, uh, from time to time, employ militia and guards to keep watch. But having said that, Parliament remained remarkably open, really, even after the gunpowder plot, because of its location where the law courts were also sitting in Westminster Hall, which is adjacent to, to you know, to Parliament and still is on part of this parliamentary estate, this royal palace of Westminster. Because of that, people were coming and going all the time. It wasn't possible to create absolute security on the site. That's always been an aspect of, of Parliament, that you can never guarantee absolute security if you allow the comings and goings of the people, which, of course, in the English parliamentary tradition is important. It's important that people can get onto the site to speak to their MP, even, even today. Now, the 17th century is obviously a, a hugely turbulent period in Parliament's history. 
And we have a question here from Susie1340, which is, what might have been the face of Parliament had Charles I won the Civil War? Yeah, that's a very good, interesting, counterfactual question, which everybody's going to have a, d- a different view on. I think it's important to recognise that when Charles I tried to arrest the five members of the House of Commons in January 1642, he was trying to arrest a, a, a small group of people he regarded as traitors and conspirators. He wasn't trying to shut down the entire parliament. And I think it would have been very difficult for kings to dispense with parliament. Had Charles won the Civil War, I don't think he could have eliminated parliament because he still needed taxation. There would have to have been some other system if there weren't parliaments. So I think the likely outcome for Parliament, had Charles I won the Civil War, is that Parliaments, after a while, would have come back and the Stuart monarchs would have been forced to recognise that they needed some representative body to grant them the taxation they needed. So other people might take a different view, but my own view is that some kind of parliamentary system would have prevailed, perhaps something more along the lines of has been seen on you know in other parts of of Europe and so forth rather than the the unbroken parliamentary tradition that we've got but some kind of parliament would have survived i think even if charles had won and to what extent did the civil war change and embolden parliament well to a very very large extent because it's a key aspect of parliament in the civil war that it it comes to run the country. Parliament actually, once it had won the English Civil War, became the the executive body of the kingdom, became the government. So Parliament acquires power during the 1640s, during the Civil War and leading up to the trial and execution of Charles I. It had never enjoyed before and was never to enjoy since because after 1649, Parliament began to lose some of the power it, it had acquired. But it certainly led to a, a sense in which Parliament was emboldened, to use that word, and also integrated in, indispensably into the constitution of the kingdom. So the net effect of the Civil War was to expand and concentrate parliamentary authority and parliamentary the, the right of Parliament to be part of the constitution. So at the restoration of Charles II, I mean, did Parliament look very different to how it had done a couple of decades before? Yes, it had an integral part of proceedings at the restoration and played a major part in the restoration. The people who were tried and executed for their part in the trial and execution of Charles I, the so-called regicides, were prosecuted by parliamentary legislation. And it was Parliament who decided ultimately who was to be on the list, as it were, of people tried and executed. Parliament played a major role in that, in conjunction with the King, but but it was integral, really, to the restoration settlement. And very briefly, could you, I mean, we all know about Oliver Cromwell, but could you introduce us to two of the main drivers of these huge changes in Parliament in the mid-17th century. Who are the other men who really affected these changes during this period? I suppose if you had to single out one key figure other than Oliver Cromwell, who is rather odd because he made parliaments in many ways and broke parliaments, he's he's a rather ambivalent figure, 
when it comes to Parliament. But I suppose one one of the major figures would be would have to be John Pym, who between 1640 and 1643 was a leading figure really in the the House of Commons. You might call him the the great parliamentary war leader when the civil war breaks out. And his role is absolutely crucial, really, in in Parliament in those years. So I'd I'd single him out. Perhaps Sir Henry Vane, the younger, the younger Sir Henry Vane, you'd have to single him out as being vital in the evolution of parliamentary power. He was a great naval administrator. He was also, it seems, one of the few genuine Republicans that this country had at the time. So those are a couple of individuals who you'd have to single out as as being a special. Oliver Cromwell emerges from obscurity, really, in Parliament, and he really acquires the authority in Parliament that he, he does in the late 1640s through his military victories. He's a great general while he's an MP, and his successes on the battlefield expand his status, increase his standing in Parliament, together with his capacity for networking and and for political activity, really, and activism. Um, So so by 1649, he's an important player in the trial and execution of the king and a great enthusiast then for the parliament that comes after the trial and execution of the king, which is usually called the rump parliament because the army in which Cromwell is an important player plays the crucial role in eliminating people from Parliament, secluding them at something called, an event called Pride's Purge in December 1648. But then Cromwell eventually becomes Lord Protector, having kicked out the Parliament in 1653. So he breaks that Parliament, dismisses them, and then sets himself up as Lord, becomes Lord Protector. But as Lord Protector, he calls Parliaments. So he has this ambivalent relationship with Parliament, on the one hand being willing to turn out Parliament, get rid of it by force, and then bringing new ones in. So he's a rather strange parliamentarian, really, in many ways, in that respect, even though his statue stands today outside the the Houses of Parliament. So he was kind of both a defender and a scourge of Parliaments at the same time, I guess. Yeah, exactly. A, A defender of Parliaments, an advocate, an employee of Parliament as a general, but then a great scourge of them, and somebody who wanted to work with Parliaments but didn't have any compunction about getting rid of them if he thought they weren't working properly. I'm now going to turn to a question submitted by Silver Gino, and that is, how shocking an event was the assassination of Prime Minister Spencer Percival in the lobby of the House of Commons in 1812? Well, Spencer Percival remains the only Prime Minister to be assassinated. He's not the only MP, of course, to be assassinated, as sadly we know from recent years. But Spencer Percival is the only one to have suffered that particular misfortune among our Prime Ministers. It was very bad luck, really, that Spencer Percival was shot there, because the old House of Commons lobby in the old Parliament, before the fire of uh, 1834, was a space of some 900 square feet, and it was usually very, very crowded with people. It would have been extremely difficult for Spencer Percival to have been shot normally. But on the day he was shot, the lobby was relatively empty. And so it was very unfortunate to be shot in in that particular way. But it was a hugely shocking event. 
naturally, again, like Gunpowder Plot, is one of those events that strikes right at the heart of, of the establishment. And, of course, the people involved in the that particular individual, the, the assassin, was, you know, necessarily tried and executed for his his role. But it wasn't an assassination that represented some deep plot. It was just, you know, a, a kind of... If you think about the Kennedy assassination, it was a, a lone gunman, and unlike the Kennedy assassination, there haven't been any kind of conspiracy theories about it. It seems that the assassination of Spencer Percival, shocking though it was, was a one-off event, really. Now, another question that is popular among internet search queries relates to what happened to Parliament during the First and Second World War. So I wonder if you could talk us through that quickly. How did global conflict impact upon the running of Parliament? I mean, did they continue to sit throughout the conflicts? Yes, they did, and it was very important that they did so. The Second World War was more traumatic for Parliament than the First World War because during the Second World War, Parliament was bombed. The most severe bombing took place in May 1941. But the work of Parliament carried on in nearby buildings. It was The Commons was bombed, and so the House of Commons moved into the House of Lords and carried on business there, and also in a, a building near Parliament called Church House, which is a very large headquarters of the Church of England near there. So business carried on as usual. And it was very important that it did so to show the nation that parliamentary business would not be disrupted by by the bombing and by warfare. So they carried on throughout the period, really, of, of the Second World War and the First World War, quite deliberately and as, as an important response to maintain morale in the country. And the House of Commons was rebuilt after the bombing, exactly as it had been before. So there was it, it was thought important that the rebuilding should not be used as an opportunity to recreate or alter the layout of Parliament. It was a an accurate rebuilding. And that leads us quite nicely on to another question we've had submitted, and that relates to the physical building in which Parliament sits. I know, know you've touched upon this already in the interview a couple of times, but could you just reiterate, how long has Parliament been based at the in the Palace of Westminster. I wonder if maybe you could kind of touch upon also the design of the building, because sometimes it does get criticised, doesn't it, for inflaming kind of the combative nature of politics, because it's got this, this design where competing parties actually face each other. To take the question of how long it's been on that site, there has been a, a parliament at Westminster, on the, the Palace of Westminster, from the Middle Ages, from the 14th century, if not earlier. The old Palace of Westminster, the one that Oliver Cromwell knew, as it were, and which survived down to 1834, was a real warren of small buildings and a jumbled site with all kinds of things on it, other than the Commons and the Lords. It was a very cluttered site, which had just become more and more inadequate, as it were. And the Great Fire of 1834 destroyed all that, and there are pictures, you know, of, of the old Palace of Westminster. We we don't know anything about its accurate plans, but we, we know what it looked like. And you can see from old prints and so forth that it, the pre-fire 
Palace of Westminster was a real jumble of wooden buildings and all kinds of things, as well as more substantial buildings. But in 1834, it was decided to level the site and rebuild in the way that we know today. And it was a a long and slow process, as, as you can imagine. But the idea of the House of Commons having the, it's often called a cockpit, isn't it, with one party facing another, must have, it it did actually copy what what had been visible in the old House of Commons. There was always a, a kind of central space with benches on either side of it and the speaker at one end. We've got prints from the 17th century from the old palace showing that arrangement. But in those days, in the 17th century, there was no adversarial sense in which the government sat on one side and the opposition on the other. That's something that's, that emerged subsequently. Today, it's, it's thought that it was set up deliberately to reproduce that adversarial sense, but it wasn't really. It was just copying what had been there before. But now, of course, it is used in that way, and there was some discussion only in the 1940s after the bombing as to whether it should be set up in a different way. But they elected to go for continuity, as it were, with the past. Winston Churchill was very keen that it should be rebuilt after the bombing, as it it was before. But, as I say, it's, it's not so much that it was a deliberate attempt to put one side against the other. Okay, my next question is... Who was the first woman to sit in the Houses of Parliament? Well, the first MP to take her seat in the House of Commons was Nancy Astor, who was the MP for Plymouth, and she took her seat in 1919. But she wasn't the first woman elected to Parliament. Before her, a woman called Constance Markievicz was elected, and she was a Sinn Féin MP, elected in 1918. And Sinn Féin MPs, then as now, don't take their seats because they are opposed to the English Parliament. They are the Irish party that supports Irish independence, complete independence. So Constance Markiewicz was elected but never took her seat. OK, and I now wonder if I could just quickly ask you about a couple of Parliament's strangest traditions. Can you tell us about the Black Rod well, Black Rod is, is the name that's usually given to someone who, uh, as, as you know, hammers on the door of the House of Commons to summon the MPs to the House of Lords when Parliament is opened, and the door is closed in the face of Black Rod when he comes. So that's an ancient tradition that goes back to the 17th century, really, although, again, that's an, a, it's quite hard to trace the first example of that. You know, it's a tradition that's lost in the mists of time a bit as to how it's actually done. But the full title of Black Rod is the Gentleman Usher of the Black Rod. So he carries a a black rod and he's the Gentleman Usher of the House of Lords. He's an employee of the House of Lords and his job is to represent the House of Lords on that occasion of opening of Parliament to summon the Commons. So Stephen, another question which is popular among internet search queries is the relationship between the monarch and the institution of parliament. So how much power does the monarch wield over parliament and how has that changed over the centuries? Well, in practice, the monarch has very little or almost no authority over parliament. 
because our parliaments evolved over many, many, many centuries, as I've been saying, that there are some aspects of the relationship between the monarch and parliament that still survive. As I've said, the Palace of Westminster is a royal palace, so in in theory, I suppose, parliament is dependent on the monarch for that accommodation. But in practice, that, that you know, it's never going to be the case that a monarch could take back you know, the, the, the parliamentary estate, as it were, and call it a royal palace. It's just not, not going to happen, really. I think what we've seen is the eating away of any residual powers of the monarch over parliament over, over many, many centuries. But there are still, I suppose, the power to prorogue is actually still the, still rests in the hands of the monarch. But nowadays, as we've seen recently, it's it's more likely to be used by the prime minister who can kind of co-opt that power for the prime minister's own purposes. The idea that the monarch would have the capacity to uh, control parliament, as it were, is, is a non-starter. We don't have a written constitution, so there are many things that theoretically might be possible, but, you know, they're, they're just never going to happen. And Stephen, if you could pick out three of the most dramatic speeches that, that have been delivered in the Houses of Parliament over the last few centuries. I mean, I know this is a very, very subjective, it'd be a very personal choice, but could you talk us through three that really stand out to you? One that stands out for me, you'd have to identify John Pym, who I mentioned earlier, I think, who in 1640, when the first Parliament of 1640 met, uh, Parliament hadn't met for 11 years, and John Pym gave a two-hour speech to Parliament in the opening days of the Parliament, summarising all the grievances that the MPs had against Charles I. And it was um, a speech that was uh, two hours extremely long, but apparently it, people list, listened to it attentively, and it summarised the mood in the House of Commons. And that's an important point about great speeches. They either have to be summarising the feel of the house, the sense of the house, carrying people with them, you know, whoever the speaker is, if they can carry the house with them and make their points in such a way that people remember them, then that's a, a, an indication of a great speech. And Pym's was one of those speeches. There are also speeches that, of course, change the course of history. One of them, I suppose, would be Oliver Cromwell's speech in April 1653, where he turns out the Parliament and says, in the name of God, go, and then got his soldiers to kick out the MPs. That's the opposite of taking the House with you. He kicks out the House on that occasion, but but it changes the course of history because he then introduces the protectorate of which he is the head himself. He becomes Lord Protector Cromwell. So that's another great speech that will go down in history. And that phrase, the name in the name of God, go, echoed down the centuries, really, and it comes into my third great speech, which comes in the 20th century, when Leo Amory, during a debate called the Norway Debate in May 1940, used those words in the name of God, go, in his speech in the House of Commons, pointing to Neville Chamberlain, who was the then Prime Minister. And that speech summarised, really, the, the feelings of the House of Commons, and it was shortly afterwards that Chamberlain resigned and was succeeded as Prime Minister by Winston Churchill. 
So you can see there where one great speech in April 1653 echoes down the centuries to be used again in May 1940, both times of great crisis in the country. So those are the three, my, would be my three big choices, I suppose. That was Stephen Roberts. The History of Parliament, The House of Commons, 1640 to 1660, is published by Boydell and Brewer. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.